We're so excited to welcome you all to the Sugar Free Show with your hosts, Karen Thompson and Emily Maguire. Each episode, we aim to bring you expert interviews and content that will give you the tools to empower you in making the best choices for your health and well-being. Not only look at what you feed your body, but also your mind and soul whilst adding in a whole host of fun and laughter. And always remember that together we can do what we cannot do alone. So on that note, it's time to come and hang out with us. So you touched upon a terminology there that I just wanted you to explain because it's something I was taught in university and that is empty calories and that's something nutritionists and dietitians love as a concept and a terminology to say so can you just say what it is and how it kind of I suppose takes away even the impact sugar can have on the body well so this is the thing and I'm kind of embarrassed that I didn't figure this out earlier in my life when I was writing my other books um, in science, and again, I tend to get long-winded, so I apologize. Um, all my books have been about how science is done. That's what fascinates me. And the thing that I didn't really think about is in science, the technology you have available determines the questions you can ask. And then the questions you can ask kind of determines the answers you get. And then you shape your hypotheses based on the information available, which is very technology dependent. So from the 1860s to 1920s, all of nutrition science is vitamins and mineral content in the foods. And so vitamin and mineral deficiencies, which are experiments you could do in animals and you could you know, measure these things. And then energy content of foods and the energy expended by living organisms, whether like experimental animals or humans. So in 1860s, uh, German uh, nutritionists create something called you know, room-sized calorimeters, which are these room-sized devices that measure how much energy people expend. And by doing so, they can now measure energy in and energy out. So by 1920, you have all of nutrition is about vitamins and minerals and calories, which is a measure of energy. And we come up with these theories. And so when we talk about sugar as empty calories, you're using, you're empty of vitamins and minerals and fiber and calories, which is the energy content. So you're describing the problem in terms of 100 year old science. And the problem is, Medical science exploded after 1920. Entire fields of medicine came up. So nowadays we like to talk about gut biome a lot because that's one of the newest things we can study. So everybody suddenly goes, oh, it's got to be gut biome. But that's because they ignored the 60 years of medical science from like 1980 years, 1920 to 2000, that it could also be. So when we talk about different carbohydrates having different metabolic hormonal effects and technical term for the science of hormones and hormone-related diseases, endocrinology. So different carbohydrates have different metabolic and endocrine effects. You know, that's where, that's 80 years of medical science that's been left out of the empty calories term. And that's where I'm saying many to most of the answers are. Mm -hmm. 
And I think so just again, it's, you touched upon it as well, just I think you're answering all of our, our questions in here, Gary, but I just want to, so it's, the book is obviously Case Against Sugar. And as you said, a lot of people might say, why are you not doing it against all carbohydrates? Why are you just focusing in on sugar? So what, just kind of what briefly does the difference between sugar have, say, with regards to other carbohydrates on the body in terms of disease and weight gain and obesity? Okay, and to some extent, I don't know. Okay, um, I'm trying to answer this question. So you have different questions that we're all trying to answer. So one question is we have obesity and diabetes epidemics worldwide. Doesn't matter what population you look at, they start eating Western diets. They become obese and diabetic. So clearly, even though they're genetic issues, um, it can't be a genetic thing because it doesn't matter what the underlying genotype is. So that's the question I want to answer. And sugar is the most likely answer to that question. If the question was, now I've got these obese and diabetic populations worldwide, how do I make them healthy? That question has got a different answer. And that question is get rid of the sugar and the refined carbs and maybe the easily digestible starches and replace them with fat. So, you know, again, when you eat, when I'm talking about sugar, you're getting glucose and fructose. And when you're doing in sugary beverages, you're getting it sort of very quickly consumed and quickly digested. And the glucose stimulates your pancreas to secrete insulin in response. And the fructose is metabolized in the liver and in the context of this insulin secretion from the pancreas, a lot of it's converted into fat. And it looks like it causes insulin resistance. I could be wrong, but there's significant evidence that that's what it does. And then insulin resistance is kind of the fundamental problem in this common form of diabetes and in obesity. Um, when you're just consuming, say, white bread, you're getting mostly glucose, although something I didn't realize is that in white bread in the U.S., it can be 10 to 12% sugar, sucrose, or high fructose corn syrup, which is what makes it different than like French bread that you might, you know, baguettes that's also white that you might consume in France, which might be only 2%. Um, the glucose you know, is metabolized by every organ in your body. So the more glucose you get and the quicker it's digested, the higher the glycemic index, the greater the insulin response to the blood sugar. But that's a kind of short-term effect, whereas the effect of fructose and the, the insulin resistance is a longer-term effect that, you know, what I'm arguing makes the glucose, the, the insulin response to the glucose worse chronic. Um, so th those are the sort of basic differences. Um, the fructose metabolized in the liver, the glucose, every cell in the body, um, or most every cell. And one's causing, probably causing insulin resistance and then making the other one worse. So without the sugar, you might be able to consume the white bread without significant harm or the white flower, but because we never see those two separated in populations, it's hard to say. We don't really have natural experiments where, you know, some isolated population only started eating white flour and didn't eat sugar. You do have Southeast Asia where they were eating 
some flour and rice, but it wasn't, you know, the highly refined stuff that we started producing in, you know, the second half of the 19th century with the Industrial Revolution. So you briefly touched on the World Health Organization, and they just, um, I mean, you know, changed their recommendation of our daily intake. Um, they've dropped it from 10% of added sugar to 5% of added sugar. Do you think this is uh, this will help? This is good enough? Um, what's your take on that? I mean, it's certainly better, and it'll certainly help. Again, the question is how much people pay attention to recommendations. But it all keeps the conversation going. I think the key thing is, yeah, there was a period right when the obesity and diabetes epidemic started exploding in the U.S. where we, we had this vague sense that sugar was bad for us. There was a lot of discussion in the 60s and 70s that sugar is bad for us and people are getting fatter and the press is talking about diets all the time. But then high fructose corn syrup comes in and we thought it was kind of healthy. The corn refiners mm -hmm. referred to it as fruit sugar and they made it went out of their way to disassociate it from sugar itself. And all these products appear that have the veneer that are advertised as health foods. The classic one being sort of low fat yogurt with fruit. Mm -hmm. So it's got fruit, which is a good thing, right? Adam and Eve ate fruit. Look where it got them. Wait a minute, I'm getting distracted. Um, fruit is perceived by dietitians as a good thing. We all thought it's a good thing. It's got you know vitamin C and all these good nutrients in it and it's low fat yogurt what could be wrong with it and basically you take a little bit of the fat out you stick a little bit of fruit in and then you stick in a lot of high fructose corn syrup to replace the mouthfeel and so you take a food that might have started off healthy we don't know that's the fat story and then you've reduced a little bit of the fat a little bit of the calories and you've added high fructose corn syrup, and there are all kinds of foods like this. You know, Gatorade, I mean, who can Gatorade? It's like that's when you're supposed to consume after you exercise, and then Powerade, and all the ones like it, and then the Snapple iced teas that, you know, clearly weren't sodas. They were sort of positioned as we, everybody kind of knows you're not supposed to be drinking Coke if you're health conscious. So you, instead you drink, you know, Snapple, or the, I, my favorite was Soba iced tea, which was you know, with ginkgo biloba, okay, so it has this veneer of health, but it's all the calories are from sugar, high fructose mm -hmm. corn syrup. And then you've got things like jamba juices, where I once, you know, contemplated opening a jamba juice uh, franchise in New York, because I was introduced to it in California, and I thought this stuff is the greatest thing in the world. It's basically, you know, pureed fruit. It's a fruit smoothie. And how can that not be good for you? But basically, you're taking, you know, the, all the vitamins and minerals and the fruit and all the healthy stuff, and then you're pureeing it and so that you can now digest the sugar easily and quickly. And there is sugar in the fruit, and there's fructose in the fruit. And so you're creating something that initially was, might have been relatively healthy, and you're figuring out a way to get it into your bloodstream as quickly as possible. I mean, you can make the same argument. I know addiction specialists who do, who say, look, clearly chewing on, you know, coca leaves with the cocaine content in the leaves is kind of, it's a mild stimulant, and it allows people, you know, uh, uh, natives in the Andes to do remarkable athletic, uh, you know, day-to-day -day physical activity by chewing on this mild stimulant, and then you slowly... Um, refine it into a white powder that you could snort and inject and it becomes deadly. 
and incredibly mm. addictive. Mm. Um, and on some level, we did the same thing with sugar. It's just, it's a longer term process. Um, okay, so I hate the term in moderation, but what is your um, opinion on having sugar in moderation or practicing abstinence? Yes, I hate the term moderation too. It's sort of the flip side of overeating. So people, whenever somebody writes, you know, when the overeating sugar is bad for you, and my response is, well, overeating anything is bad for you, right? That's why you have the term overeating. It's a tautology. Yeah, the question is, is eating sugar bad for you? And then again, moderation, how do you define moderation? How do yeah. you know you're eating in moderation. So you, Karen, can be consuming two ice cream cones a day and you're lean and you're obviously consuming in moderation. And your next door neighbor who happens to be obese or diabetic can consume one ice cream cone a day and we would look at her and think that clearly this woman is a glutton and she shouldn't be eating ice cream. So moderation basically means the amount you could consume without being obese or diabetic. So if you're obese or diabetic already, then that would imply that no amount of sugar can be consumed in moderation. I mean, you could consume less, but you can't define moderation in those terms. And the same thing if you're lean. I have a friend who's an emeritus professor of epidemiology at UCLA, and he's about six foot five and 180 pounds and spends his year skiing. So it's, you know, Northern hemisphere in winter, Southern hemisphere in our summer. Um, whenever we get together, he likes to order three desserts instead of, you know, appetizer, main course dessert because he can do it. So to him, three desserts are moderation. And I mean, he's joking and I think he thinks I'm right about the science. But he's making the point that what works for him is not necessarily what works for other people. Um, I recently had this Wall Street Journal op-ed on whether or not sugar is killing us. And I got an email from a, a fashion photographer in Manhattan who is 61 years old, lives on sugar, plays tennis 200 days a year. He said he has sex with people 20 to 25 years younger than he is. I guess he performs <laughs> well. And he even sent me a photo of what great, and the guy was in great shape. And he thought, if I'm going to write about sugar being nasty, I should always point out that for some people, it's clearly beneficial. And I said, so if I'm going to write about cigarettes and lung cancer, am I always required to point out that for 80 to 90% of the people who smoke will not get lung cancer? You know, it's, so yeah, I think, Okay, so that's my issue with moderation. I don't think it can be defined. Mm -mm. I don't think it has any meaning in this. It's completely dependent on the individual and on whether or not I'm right about sugar being toxic. And um, if it is indeed addictive, then there is no such thing as moderation with somebody who is actually addicted to a substance. And that's the second issue, yeah, because I was a smoker and we've all had our substance issues. Um, you would never tell an ex-smoker, an ex-former, an alcoholic or a reformed drug addict that you can do this in moderation or that you should even try. I mean, I, I try to imagine the health community saying, well, Gary, you know, you were smoking a pack a day. Why don't you see if you can get down to five a day and just keep it at that? Or even... 
you know, cut to 15, then 10, then five, then zero. Um, and as an ex-smoker, and I say this in the last chapter of the book, because a lot of my thinking on this, I think in this sense, you know, a lot of nutritionists were too healthy ever to be a smokers. Um, journalists, you know, we were traditionally, they were smoking and alcohol for journalism. By the time I got into the field, it was just smoking. It took me 20 Sorry. years to quit, but I could never, you know, it's easier for me to not smoke any cigarettes and to try and mm. smoke in moderation. And I think it's true for me and a lot of people, it's easier not to consume any sugar than to try and do it in moderation. I think it's just that simple. If mm. I don't have sugar in the house, if I don't consume it, if I don't, not sitting next to my wife at dinner when she orders dessert, I don't crave it, I don't miss it. And I'm perfectly happy without it. Mm. Um, I think that's true of a lot of people. I'm speculating, mm. but I, you know, I think that's a pretty common phenomenon. And when I talk to people about it, so do they. So for people like us, there's no, the concept of moderation doesn't work. Even if you could define it, you know, a little bit of sugar every day, or I get to have, you know, Friday is going to be my sugar day instead of binging on alcohol. <laughs> try not to binge on ice cream um mm -hmm. you know it's just easier not to do it at all mm -hmm. and um i think you know and again i some people can't they don't want to hear that message and i don't blame them i'll tell you another story if you guys have patience oh, we definitely, definitely do gary we okay. can listen to you all day so <laughs> good um the uh <laughs> Uh, people live catty corner from me. There, there was a famous uh, New Yorker writer and professor at the uh, UC Berkeley School of Journalism who he passed away about six weeks ago, 95 years old. Um, about a month before he passed away, our, we always have a block party once a year on our street, and his nurse took him to the block party. He was he had had Alzheimer's for years, so he wasn't that. Cogent, but uh, he was, you know, in a bathrobe and pajamas and a wheelchair and kind of curled over like you'd expect for a 95-year-old man. And I was sitting at the block party at a table, and this guy, Bernard, is eating a piece of pie, 95, a month away from his death, and he's perfectly happy. And there's an eight-year-old sitting across from me at the table, I don't know, who's eating a piece of pie and is perfectly happy. And I'm thinking, like, am I crazy that I think this is something these people shouldn't do? Clearly, it is such a vehicle of joy and happiness um, that we should be able to have it in our lives to some level. That to advocate that we not consume it is, you know, it's the, I mean, the metaphor I always use, the Grinch trying to steal Christmas. Um, on the other hand, had we never consumed sugar, or had we lived in a culture like, say, France 50 years ago, where, I don't know about the eight-year-old, but we'd all have been eating cheese plates after dinner. Um, we don't need the sugar. The reason it's so powerful uh, and so saturates our society is because it saturates everywhere. It's like, imagine if we had a drug that just gives us pleasure and didn't have short-term deleterious consequences. That's what sugar seems to have been. So I think we'd all be healthier without it. But getting to that point 
Whereas a society, we make that decision, even as individuals, we make that decision. It's extremely hard to do, and it's extremely hard for me to actually see us getting there. But I still think these arguments have to be heard and made. Mm -hmm. So just to come to that, we've just got a few kind of questions to wrap up um, with it. Where, where do you think we will be in sort of 20, 30 years time? Do you think that sugar will still be as prominent or do you think we will see it as kind of a, a toxic substance? I think it'll, I think we'll have come way down in our sugar consumption. Um, the toxicity argument is a... You know, I don't know how well that'll be accepted. I mean, again, I will see. I mean, uh, a lot of people are going to fight back about it. Um, and I, as I admit in the book, the argument, the the evidence is ambiguous. So I think, you know, given 20 or 30 years, we'll be eating you know, 50% the sugar we are now. I think this, the... Like I said, I just think it'll slowly fade away from our diets in many different ways. The problem is if you want to have joy in your diet and pleasure in your diet, if it's not coming from sugar, the other choices are really salt and fat. <laughs> and we demonize fat too, and that's clearly a whole other show. Um, so people are going to have to understand that fat isn't the problem and maybe salt isn't the problem. And so, you know, we could all go back to eating the way the French used to eat or the Swiss back when they, you know, they were still the longest of populations in the world. But so cutting back on sugar is one thing, but doing it in the way that doesn't, that replaces it with something that still gives you pleasure is kind of crucial. So we'll see what happens. Mm. I think it'll be interesting to see where, it's, where it goes to. Yes, it will be. Absolutely. So we've got to finish off now, um, not because we want to, but because we kind of have to. Um, but what are your top three tips for sugar-free living? Uh, top three tips for sugar-free living. Um, yeah, get... <laughs> I like doing this. Um, get foods out of your house that you crave. I mean, again, funny, quick, funny story. I, people sent me from that that uh, low carb LA, low carb San Diego meeting. I met these people who make paleo treats. This woman, and she sent me this box of paleo treats. They were delicious, <laughs> and they're made with honey. Oh, and some no. of them, but some of them have like relatively low levels of honey, so it's like kind of acceptable by my standards. If it's you know kind of seven grams you know, per portion, reasonable portion size, I'll, I'll try it. But they were so good that I basically decided on like a weekend that I was going to binge eat and finish them all. Because <laughs> I, I was thinking about them all the time. Like every day it was like, oh my God, can I have one now? Can I have one now? I know they're in my refrigerator. I know they're healthy. I really want, like I'm up three flights in my office and I'm having this conversation <laughs> with my refrigerator downstairs. So I just had like three left. I ate them all, got it out of the house, and that's it. I'm done. I think these are wonderful treats, and I'm giving them a plug, but I couldn't deal with it. So there are a lot of sugared foods in our house that my wonderful wife buys for our children and that I think are relatively benign, um, but I don't like them, so they don't tempt me. 
you know, health food, the low-fat health food bar stuff. Um, so I think the key thing is we all know what we really crave, and that's what we have to make sure we don't have in the house um, or in the workspace, which is a problem. Um, you know, if you learn to embrace the fat in your diet, if you can get over this idea that we shouldn't be eating butter and we, sh you know, a full fat dairy and, you know, fatty animal products, um, I acknowledge that they're bad for the animals, but I think they're good for us. My read on the evidence, they're good for us and they certainly make it easier. And you could see this in animal research going back 80 years. You jack up the fat content, you um, get rid of the carb cravings. So I think if you're, you can replace the cravings with fat. And there's even some products coming out that are targeted at sugar cravings. So there's one coming out in January called Crush Crave or Crave Crush, I always forget. That's very interesting, I've tried it. But the other last piece, I think, Again, because I was a smoker, it helps to treat it like you would. If you're really serious about it, treat it like you would any other addiction, which means not only going cold turkey, but setting yourself sort of goals you think you can cope with. So it's like, I'm going to go a week without sugar. And then if you successfully go a week, you could say, now I'm going to go a month. And, it's, and if I really miss it, I could go back to it. But at the end of a month, maybe I'll feel good enough and I'll have made enough progress that I'll keep going. I think three months is probably kind of what you need to have a good feeling for how, what your life feels like without sugar and how empty it is of pleasure and how physically you feel. Do you feel better? Do you have so much more energy that, you know, by three months you could clearly say, look, I've given it a, a good experiment and I'm going to stick with it or not for life. But so I think, treating it like an addiction and treating it like an experiment. So I'm going to see what happens. I'm not going to commit to a lifetime without sugar because many people can't do that. But I'm going to commit to a month or two months or three months and I'm going to see how I feel. And again, this is, you know, I'm an amateur at the addiction stuff. You know, Karen, you're the expert on the science. Um, but I think that's, and again, in my experience, it's a way to get people over the initial hurdles and the, the feeling that this is such a huge thing in my life. How could I possibly live without it? And go, well, we're not telling you to live without it for your whole life. Just live without it for a week or two. And then if it's not terrible, go another couple and, you know, do it slowly. So that, Amazing. I agree completely. I mean, that one day at a time concept that, that you know, that comes from the Alcoholics Anonymous literature really, really does work. Um, and it also takes away the I can never have it again or have to give it up completely because saying goodbye to sugar is so much more than just saying goodbye to sugar. It's saying goodbye yeah. to your best friend or a loved one or whatever. You know, it well, has so much like, meaning. You know, especially in the United States, we've kind of deemed, I mean, life one of the interesting revelations from doing my book was that, you know, life for most people is very hard and tedious. I mean, until really good TV came along, it was those sorts of daily pleasure. So we needed these addictions. We needed our caffeine for energy and our alcohol and our nicotine and our sugar. And it's what made life worth living for a lot of people. And then, you know, well, we got rid of cigarettes, that's going to kill us, and alcohol is going to kill us. And, you know, for people who don't have those more significant vices, sugar's what's left. 
you know? And it's really like, it's just what's left. They can't, they're not allowed to eat a lot. They can't, they're not supposed to eat fat. So, you know, it's your, your sugar snack. It's what brings us joy. <laughs> and, you know, I get it. I completely understand it. But I do think that you can get past that point. And you just like, there was a period in my life where I couldn't imagine happiness without mediating it with nicotine. I mean, I could not imagine not smoking. And then, you know, I've like three weeks of awfulness, three months of grouchy, cranky, alienating everyone you know, a year <laughs> of general unhappiness, and then suddenly you get to the point you can't imagine you ever that you ever smoked. <laughs> and you can't imagine going back to smoking. It's sort of like until you get to that point, you never know. I think you could go with sugar. So a year of unhappiness. A year of have a lifetime, a year of, yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not easy, but it's, with cigarettes, it was easier because clearly I knew it was killing me. Mm. It, you also just, you know, you smell bad, coughing all the time. It's, um, and when you mm. go back, when you smoke, it's not like you get that intense feeling of pleasure you mm. do from sugar. You just get a sort of, oh, that's better. Now I have my nicotine. <laughs> and I think that is it is because it's so surrounded in our society and it's so accepted, yeah. you know. And the holidays are coming up, and everyone gives sugar. It's, it's that. Well, that's of... the thing. It's it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't. And then you know, it's funny if you're trying to quit drinking or smoking, your friends help. If you're mm -hmm. trying to quit sugar, it's like, oh, come on, have some cake. <laughs> <Seems> crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so just just to kind of come back to that, Gary, when is the book coming out? Book comes out. I think it's available on Amazon December twenty seventh. You can okay. pre-order it. The official pub date might be January first. Okay. And um, it's exciting. A lot of things. And is happening. that is that worldwide or is that just America, UK? Uh, America, UK, and about seven or eight other countries that have uh, it's going to be translated to so far and uh, probably in Australia available, I would think. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know. Yeah, well, we will link, we will link to everything there, but it is an amazing read. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I didn't know if it'd be as, be able to measure up as the good calories, bad calories, but it most definitely does. So um, I'm very excited for this one to get out there. So Gary, we are coming up on time. We were very conscious. We could talk to you all day, but um, thank you so, so much for this interview. It's been really probably one of my favorites so far. My favorite. For, yeah. Yes, <laughs> Just about to say you. probably Cara as well. <laughs> okay. um, so thank you so much for being on with us. Thank you, guys. This has been great. Okay, take care. <laughs> the Sugar Free Show podcast is sponsored by the Sugar Free Reset Guide. If you're looking at trying to give up sugar, to lose weight, improve your skin, or have a greater amount of vitality, the Sugar Free Reset Guide is a tool that can help you with this. Packed with e-guides, meal plans, recipes, eating out lists, and worksheets, it gives a detailed step-by-step -step approach on how to quit sugar for 30 days and beyond. Now you can challenge yourself anytime, any month to quit sugar. Head on over to thesugarfreerevolution.com where you can get a downloadable copy of the Sugar Free Reset Guide. It's time to see what quitting sugar can do for your body and your health.